0: On the Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean
1: Spear, editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Jamie Watt, executive chairman of Navigator, the well-known Canadian advisory and communications firm, a longtime political strategist and commentator, and for the past several years, a columnist for the Toronto Star. He's recently published a collection of columns entitled, What I Wish I Said, Confessions of a Columnist. The columns cover the period since September 2016 and reflect a range of themes and topics, including politics, human rights, Donald Trump, and the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book, including the role of a columnist, what he learned going back and reviewing his past columns, and what advice he would give his previous self. Jamie, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book.
2: Well, thanks for both of that. Thanks for having me. And uh... You know, uh, I didn't realize how vulnerable, because uh, this is, of course, my first book, I didn't realize how vulnerable you were when you actually had that thing bound <laughs> and done. So that's nice of you to say thanks.
1: Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to digging into the book. But before we do, let's go back to September 2016, when you started your regular column at the Toronto Star. You'd been involved in, in politics and public commentary for a long time. You probably wrote a lot of op-eds under your own byline. And others what did you expect what did you hope to achieve and what in hindsight did you misunderstand about the role of a columnist Uh, what has surprised you about your gig
2: well let me start with the last part of that question first uh what surprised me is that no one bosses you around i expected that editors would tell me what to write that they would assign topics at least not what to write specifically but they would assign topics i thought they would have points of view on what would interest readers and Actually, none of that. You're out in this little rowboat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean all by yourself. You have to figure out um, not only what your point of view is, although that's not that difficult if you have a guiding or a star and a sense of um, where you sit on things, but it's a completely blank slate. I didn't understand that editors assign reporters, but part of being a columnist is you have absolute free reign and they're not allowed to interfere. I found that kind of weird. And You know, I began writing on what was then called the politics page, and there was a New Democrat and a liberal and myself. So I often thought, well, why don't we all get together and do a topic of, you know, different points of view on the same topic? And nobody was interested in that. So I had to figure that part out, and I had to find my voice. That's the one thing. The second thing is I was allergic to the first person, and I never used I. I crossed that out like crazy until I learned that I, from some very good columnists, that that was dead wrong. It turns out that people who read columnists want to hear from the columnist. That's something I completely missed. So they actually want you to use the first person. Now, they don't want you to be a little snot about it, but they do want your point of view. They do want it to be personal. They do want it to be relevatory in some ways. So I didn't understand that at all. So those are the two things that I sort of figured out. And then the third thing is something that, Sean, I know that you know, being so deeply involved in policy for your career and eh, people weren't so much interested in that, right I th- you know i could write about donald trump and i get a million people reading it and i could write about you know some F- fpt thing or something that i was quite interested in you know funding formulas for healthcare or something and you know nobody gave a shit so uh
1: i want to ask about the process you used to select from your body of columns over the years to the 48 that you ultimately included in the compilation how did you decide what was in and what was out well, I didn't, because I didn't think
2: I would be very good at that. So I asked two um, people who, uh, one who wrote the foreword and one who wrote the afterword of the book, Antoine Pratt, the longtime chief editorialist for La Presse, and um, uh, Michael Cook, who, as you know, is uh, still, even at his age, a crusading editor, or amongst others, the Toronto Star. And I asked both of them to do two things for me. The first thing to do was to say, were they any good? You know, we write these things every week, and I wanted to know if any of them were any good, if it stood the test of time or not. And then the second thing is, I asked them, of the ones that we had written, which ones did they see and and, and that would be probably worth it. So that that's where it came from. First of all, they, they came back and said, no, you won't be embarrassed. They, they're they pretty good. They said they were actually better than pretty good. And then secondly, they they recommended the structure of the book as they started to look at the columns. And uh, as you as you've reflected, you know, there's six topics. Then Green Wilkinson, my co-author and our editor, had the idea to have them sequentially run within each of those sections. And that turned out to be a really helpful idea, particularly when I was writing about Trump and COVID. Because when you're in the middle of those things, you don't actually realize, you know, how uh, much things change. And of course, and I, I say in my opening essay on 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 Trump, I mean it's like we've forgotten how quickly we became to find his idiotic behavior, you know, normalized. So those were some of the ideas. So Michael and Andre helped me pick them, and then Green and Margot helped structure them within the columns that way. And then once that was done, I just wrote the uh, the pieces of both.
1: Jimmy, you're not the first columnist to publish a collection of his or her columns, but you're among the only ones that I can think of to essentially score your record as a pundit. For each column, you include a measure of whether your analysis proved accurate and an annotation in which you describe in hindsight what you got right and what you got wrong. What led you to that decision, and what was it like to essentially go back and evaluate your own performance?
2: Well, what led me to the decision and the idea for the book is it drives me bananas that all these people go on television and they write in the newspaper and they shoot their mouths off and they have no accountability for it. It makes me insane. And I realized I was one of those people. So I thought, you know what, maybe I should do something about that. So I just thought, well, you know, I think people need to have some kind of accountability. And I don't mean accountability in some kind of draconian, punitive way. It's just I think people who read you are entitled to know you know, did you get it right? Did you get it wrong? Have you, Has your point of view changed? You know, all those kinds of things. So I thought it was an interesting idea. But here's shown what I didn't know. I didn't know how many other people felt just like me. Mm. And how many people, the response to that part of the book has been quite different than we imagined. You know, we thought people would be interested in this and that. But what they're really interested in is this, this idea of holding myself accountable for what I wrote. Adrian Clarkson, you know, people remember as the governor general, but of course she was a journalist, a CB, long-time CBC journalist first, and you know, she thinks it's the freshest idea for a book that she's heard of in a long time. So I think maybe we're on to something in this, and, and the good news is if this book sells more than, you know, 15 copies, I got about 350 other columns for the next one.
1: <laughs> Let me ask a follow-up question. As you went through and identified what you got wrong, is there any common dimension that you could discern across those columns? Did they disproportionately reflect, say, optimism bias or some other tendency that can lead you and, and the rest of us astray? The biggest
2: mistake I made was the tyranny of time and four o'clock on Friday. You know, I, I I write in the book that it's a little bit like those cooking shows, you know, when people have to bake the cake and the bell rings and whether they have the little flowers on the top of the cake or not, you know, it's done. Well, four o'clock on Friday is the same thing for me. Right, Whether we're ready or not, it goes. And there's a deadline, and that deadline is, is immovable. So, for example, one thing that I, I got disastrously wrong was the impact of Trump. You know, I wrote that Trump would be a speed bump, be embarrassing. But you know what? After four years, it, his presidency would be like a sandcastle you know, on a beach in the summertime. He'd wash it away in no time. I missed entirely the impact of his judicial appointments. I didn't understand that. And those those appointments are going to impact people for generations, at least one or two generations after he's gone. And, you know, millions of women don't have the right to um, to choose, you know, dominion over their own bodies now because of that. And even a Democratic president at Senate and Congress could not could not deal with that. So the biggest thing I did was I just didn't have enough time for, you know, what I like to think about as mature reflection. Or the chance to do enough research or talk to enough people, and so I have some blind spots on that. I think, other than that, the 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 biggest thing I noticed as I go back was a maturing in my writing. I I, I gained more confidence uh, over time. I think I found my voice, and not in that I I you know all of a sudden turned into a person that I wasn't. But you know, I, people think of me as a hyper partisan conservative, and that's not true. I'm a, a red Tory. I could have been a blue liberal, right? I am part of that uniquely Canadian space that I think most Canadians actually aspire to occupy. And uh, I became more confident in, in 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 asserting that point of view. I also got sh- much, much sharper and more declarative in my writing. Enough of pussyfooting around and, you know, meandering, whatever. My sentences got shorter. They were more declarative. Um, hopefully I got a little bit funnier, but more confident, I'd say. And also, by the way, sorry, I should say more confident knowing that I was going to be wrong. Like I I became more OK with being wrong. So I I, I stopped hedging my bets. And I'll tell you, in January of this year, again, I, I don't know what I was thinking when I said, you know, there was going to be an election this year. There's not going to be an election. This year. I, well, I've changed my mind. I don't think so. I mean, why on earth would there be election? Everyone knows is going to. Everyone says every election is the most polarizing. Well, this one is going to be very polarizing, and guess who's going to get squished into nowhere? The NDP, because people are going to go one to either to the to the to the uh, Conservatives to kick these guys out, or to the Liberals to stop you know Mr. Poliak. So. The, the loser in this is going to be Mr. Singh. So I don't know why he would sign his own execution warrant and call the election out. So I, I, I don't know what I'm, I i can not even understand what I was thinking. then. I, I, that was just a stupid, a stupid thing to say.
1: Your columns have been written for a Toronto Star audience that's by and large to the left of you. What's it like to write for an audience that doesn't necessarily share your preferences and predispositions? How has it influenced your craft?
2: Well, I don't read the social media commentary about it because it will make me insane. Every once in a while I get one of these tirades, sometimes two, three thousand words. Mostly when I write on LGBTQ plus issues, but also when I write on other ones, healthcare and things like that. And I always do the same thing. And it's a character flaw that I insist on doing this. But I always write back to them and I say, thank you for your thoughtful commentary and taking the time to write. Next time, if you find yourself with time on your hands on a Sunday, perhaps you'd learn to read to the blind, bake a pie for an infirm neighbor, or drive someone to a chemotherapy appointment. Then I never hear from them again, and I know that's ridiculously childish. But every time I do, it, it makes me feel good. I'll tell you that though about the the broader Toronto Star audience, um, which has been actually very rewarding for me. Is I frequently I would say every at least every other week I get a note from someone who says, you know, I don't I don't I often don't agree with you, but I always find you to be a sensible person, and I sometimes do agree with you. So that, that is rewarding. As someone else said to me the other day that I also took as a compliment that they can pretty much predict what every columnist is going to say on a particular issue. And I'm the only one that surprises. And so, again, I think that's something that I, I seek to do. I, I don't like, I think enough of being in these boxes. I think people can now, I am a, I'm very much a conservative on fiscal issues. I'm very much a conservative on international relations. I'm very much a conservative on defense issues. I am a massive progressive on social issues, on the Canadian social net, on not leaving anybody behind, on looking after all of us and understanding into every life some rain will fall, on, you know, what it's like, the intersectionality of being a gay man, you know, with other people who who have been, you know, disadvantaged by by or othered, you know, in society. So I think people are more complex, and I hope my writing shows that. And I think the Toronto Star audience is, is, is embracing that most of the time.
1: <laughs> One more big-picture question, Jamie, before we get into the the book itself. At different times in your life, as you alluded earlier, you've been more or less active in politics itself. How has that influenced your work as a columnist? Do you think it's helped or hindered your ability to observe and describe politics for a wider audience?
2: Well, I certainly think it has helped because, you know, most of the time when you read these columnists, I like they have the craziest ideas of what actually goes on in politics. And, you know, it, it's actually bizarre what some people write. And because they've never been in politics, and, you know, it, it's as though they're, they're looking through, you know, a glass window and they can't hear anything. And all they can see is a pantomime. And the window hasn't been cleaned for, you know, 35 years. So they can't even see that. <laughs> So I actually think that a number of the columnists, I'm not going to be rude enough to name, write things that are actually bizarre and bear no relation, no relation to what happens in politics. So I at least think that when I write about that, I write from from a position of actually having some firsthand knowledge about it.
1: Okay. As I said, let's turn to the book now. There's quite a, a long section on the rights of sexual minorities. You call the, the fight for equality, quote, the defining fight of my life. Jamie, talk about your experience. What has it been like to be part of these debates and see the extraordinary progress that's been made over the years?
2: Well, I mean, first of all, I am a gay man of a certain age. And um, or a, a part of my life growing up, homosexuality was illegal. There was a time that, you know, if I thought that it would would be revealed that I was gay, that, you know, that would be the end of my life. I, not to be dramatic, but I made a noose one night, right? Because I thought I'd have to end my life and I chose to push on. But then that seems ridiculously melodramatic now or whatever, but it's not. And, 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 and it's only a measure of the progress, you know, that we've made. And so, you know, there came a time when... Some of us decided that uh, we couldn't just leave this fight to the left. We couldn't just leave this fight to activists, and that we had to, you know, take part in it ourselves. I, I don't quote Hillary Clinton that often, but she is correct when she says it takes a village, and it did take a village. It took activists in jockstraps and leather harnesses, you know, screaming at pride parades. It took really smart lawyers uh, going to court. It took the people that figured out you didn't actually need the province to issue a marriage license, you know, that a minister could publish the bans of marriage, you know, whatever thought of that because all of the churches were uh, you know, rabidly against equal marriage. But of course there was one that wasn't. You know, it took all of us doing for ourselves what we do for our clients every day of our lives. And, you know, Sean, the first fight, the first thing I lobbied on, if you can imagine today, was employment benefits for our partners. You know, we had to go to Ottawa and beg, beg for them and then you know we moved along we got a little bit more and a little bit more a little bit more and of course at the end it was marriage and um the marriage fight was very difficult because we pissed everybody off you know the the wealthy gay men who had funded much of this work said they wouldn't give me a dime for it they wouldn't give the movement a dime for it because it's are you crazy give them half no i don't want to do that we got it we got it just fine now and of course, that's not right. Um, only equal is equal. And then, 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 straight people said, "Look, we've, we've supported you and everything. We've given you everything. But why do you have to do the word marriage? Can't you just leave that alone? Leave that for some. Let like just just leave it alone." And of course, we persisted. And now, you know, we have almost nine in ten Canadians supporting it, and it's the beautiful thing. And, and, and the Canadian people, you know, people often say to me, "You know, how did how did uh, the activists? How did all you people?" win equal marriage and i say we didn't win equal marriage we didn't win equality for lgbtq people although we still have some work to do of course in the trans issue, particularly but we didn't win that fight canadians gave us that equality and it's a very important thing to understand about the amazing generosity of the canadian people they gave us that we didn't in the end it wasn't something we had to you know um jam down their throats they they and that's why it's enduring you know, and that's uh, now we have to be vigilant, of course. And there is definitely more work to do. I'm not saying there isn't, and certainly in the trans community, it's uh, it's still a, a lot of work to do. But I think we can be very proud of how Canadians have have moved their opinions and it, along on this.
0: Hi, Hub Podcast listeners, Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of the Hub wanted to ask for your support today. No, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for your attention. If you could check out right now in our podcast feed a new series that we're dropping. It's six episodes in partnership with a group called Pathways Alliance. This is the Canadian Industry Association that's tasked with the big ambitious project of decarbonizing Canada's oil sands. They want to achieve net zero by 2050. And we want to have a conversation with them and you about how to achieve this ambitious goal. Pathways is the hub's first national media and advertising partner. Their support helps us make all these other great podcasts. So if you're enjoying them, please listen to these episodes with Pathways. Give us your feedback. We'd love your input, but also share them with friends and family. That would be greatly appreciated with that advertisement over let's go back to our regular programming
1: in your follow-up note to a june 2021 column about progress on equality for sexual minorities you observe that there is growing factionalism even within the lbgt community you essentially say that the so-called culture war has even manifested itself there what do you mean and what are some of the sources of debate and fault lines. How do you think these developments affect efforts for greater equality? Well,
2: I mean, because, because of course, equality comes in layers. And, um, and as equality is achieved, it, it, it benefits different people in different ways, different groups in different ways, different social classes, economic classes, and so on in, in, in different ways. And so while for people like me, we've done very, very well, right? And we would say things are pretty, Pretty darn good. I live in a major city. I I work in uh, with progressive progressive people. I, I I pay no price for being openly gay. In fact, I was uh, in a in a in a kitchen party in in, in Newfoundland uh, the other day, and someone asked me how my, what my wife would think about it. And I just you know reflexively said my partner. And then I wondered if I should have said that. And it turns out, of course. You know, their best friend's son got married to his husband the year before, and it was the best way they've ever been to. So for, for some of us, it's 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 been, you know, a, a very good result. For other people, not so much. And so for other people, uh, especially people economically disadvantaged or otherwise, you know, who are still facing other challenges, it hasn't. And I think there's a, that tendency, you know, for some people to think that, you know, now that we've got what we needed, you know, we'll pull the drawbridge up on the island and you know, get on with our lives and and we can't do that we have to understand that there is always more work to do we have to understand the intersectionality of it as i mentioned before and that you know this thing that's happening in the states i don't think is going to come to canada but you know we have to be vigilant so i I think those are the things the other thing that's that's happened is that you know some people just want to keep fighting right and just they just want to keep at it so
1: You wrote of the rise of celebrity politics in a January 2018 column about the prospects of Oprah Winfrey running for the American presidency. When pundits debate the source of Donald Trump's political rise, they often neglect the simplest. He's ubiquitous in our culture and has 100% name recognition. Talk a bit, Jamie, about the growing conflation between entertainment and politics. What are its consequences and how do we move past it? So I, I think that um, we know the consequences, and that's Donald Trump
2: uh, on the bad side. And then, you know, some people would say it's somebody else they liked, it would, you know, they would have a different point of view. But it, you you, you answered the question, which is they have 100% name recognition, right? And, that's, and not only do they have name recognition, they have, like, profile recognition, personality recognition. So you say, take someone who's ubiquitous, like... You know Oprah, so she 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 would people would have a view of how she would be as the prime as the president. Someone like Martha Stewart, people would have a view, you know, about how she would be, you know, as the president and so on. So I think they get you know a massive head start, and in this and of course because in America they have a very different system for fundraising than we have, in which they don't have spending limits. They have some contribution limits, but they don't have spending limits. They can spend as much as they can raise. So if you've got that kind of a galloping head start, it it puts you in a very different place, especially in a culture which values celebrity, right? So, So then I would take you back. The second part of your question is, you know, what do we do about it? And I think one of the things we do about it is we value public service. And we do a crappy job of valuing public service in Canada. You know, we don't let people keep their titles unless they're in the Privy Council. So all the premiers and all the provincial cabinet ministers you know, lose their title. If you go to, as I did, the hanging of the portrait of Kathleen Wynne, you know, when it starts at Queen's Park, the uh, the master of ceremonies or whatever it was, said, you know, please rise for the rival of official party, the honorable Elizabeth Dowsville, left government, the honorable Doug Ford, and Ms. Kathleen Wynn. Well, that's nonsense. Right. And so we should let them keep their titles. We should put them all in the order of Canada. We should value public service. I think in the secular world, public service is the highest calling. I think the people that put aside their interest to go now, I might not like what they're doing, I might have a different point of view. But we need more of that. And the problem now is we're getting less Right. And if we get less of it, then we're going to get more of unqualified celebrities. You know, when we we saw, for example, that guy, you know, I've forgotten his name now, Mr. Wonderful, you know, he goes on with that hat on television. And, you know, when he tried to run for the leader of the conservatives, it's complete nonsense. You know, it's complete nonsense. And so we have to we have to find ways to encourage good people to go into public. We have to find ways to do more what you're doing, encourage debate about policy. And if we do that, then we'll get better qualified people than we
1: have right now. Just in parentheses, Jamie, about your your observations concerning how we value or or don't value public service. Presently in the province of Ontario, a minister's chief of staff oftentimes earns more in salary than the, the minister, him or herself, which is just a kind of perverse set of incentives for how to ultimately influence public service and politics, especially given all of the other costs associated with entering public life.
2: And by the way, public life includes people like the chiefs of staff, right? It's not just the politicians. It's all those people who put their lives on hold. They leave their jobs. Their 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 businesses or partners are screaming at them. Their, their partners at home are saying, get home and look after your kids. You know, they make tremendous personal sacrifice. And all we do is crap on them. It, it's got to stop.
1: It's really, really bad. As you mentioned earlier, Jimmy, one of the key insights in the book is that you ultimately got Donald Trump's candidacy and presidency wrong. You were you were skeptical that that his illiberalism would also, would amount to a serious threat to US democracy. You subscribed, as you said earlier, to the view that the institutions were strong enough not to give in to his worst excesses. What did you miss or underestimate?
2: Well, I, I underestimated. First of all, the the, the judiciary. I didn't understand. It. This was my own ignorance. And again, the part of writing a column. if I had more time. I would have, you know, been better educated on it. So one thing I missed was I didn't understand how many judges he appoints. I, I had no idea, I, and I didn't know how long they were. I, I had no idea of that, and so I mi- I missed that. I also missed how the difference in the direct control the president has over the bureaucracy compared to Canada and how many people you know get actually so I understood because I obviously read about how many people you know got changed over and how many appointments he made and so on, but I didn't really understand how that changed the bureaucracy. And how much the you know a, a, a presidential uh, decree could um, change um, the way the bureaucracy acts. So it's, it's far different than in Canada, and I didn't get that at all. And then I, the other thing I didn't understand was, you know, I, this weekend I just put 20-20-20 uh, fertilizer on my garden because I'm assured that it's going to make it grow like crazy, and I didn't understand how. His, how he would use his bully pulpit to fertilize his base. I, I didn't understand that. I, I, I actually thought a person, I wrote about this. I'm not sure if the column's in the book. I don't think it is. But I wrote about this, how he was, you know, misusing the greatest bully pulpit in the world, you know, that of the presidency, that that previously, you know, people would stop when the president of the United States spoke. They would actually stop and they would turn on their television and they would watch it or whatever on the. You know, in a shop or you know, in a food court or whatever, and that he 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 threw all that away. But I think that's a little bit, you know, in my um, you know my not closed-mindedness, but my um, I guess maybe my my more narrow perspective that I didn't understand that. Well, what I thought he was doing was appalling, and I still do think it was appalling. It acted like gasoline on the fire for his base, and he was extraordinarily effective. And I mean, I, like I don't like him at all. I don't like anything about him. I, if if. You know, every time I see one of his residences, I want to throw up in my mouth. It's just, I just don't like anything about him. But he is very effective at what he does. And you can't take that away from him.
1: Let me ask a follow-up question. You write in different points in the book about the transmission of ideas and political strategies between Canada and the U.S. What should Canadian conservatives be doing to protect themselves from Trump-like illiberalism? I think
2: the first thing they need to do is stop copying it. You know, all these people, it's such a facile thing to do to say, oh, it's working in the States, so let's do it in Canada. Well, first of all, we we don't have a two-party system, right? So, In America, if, you know, I crap on you, then, you know, you come to me. But that doesn't happen here. We have a multi-party system. So it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the way our systems work, which is why I don't like fixed elections, because I don't think they make sense in a Westminster system. But anyway, that's another story for another time. So I think the first thing is to understand that our systems are different, so not to copy it. And the second thing is, you know, the differences between our country are way more real than apparent. You know, some people say it's our constitutions, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness versus the grand promise of peace, order, and good government. You know, some people say it's guns, gays, Medicare, and Quebec. I think it's yogurt. You get your yogurt in the morning in Canada, and you look on the top of the tinfoil as you pull it off. It says, uh, "best before, right, public health warning. And do you know what it says in America?
1: Best, best before sell or something, right? Or sell by, sell by.
2: Yeah, we don't give a shit when you eat it, but get the hell out of the store, right? <laughs> so the point is, we're we're different, you know. And I I make a, you know my, my professional practice, you know, does a lot of business with Americans who come here and think that we're the same and mess it up. And so I think conservatives have to do the same thing. Is first of all, recognize the systems are different. Recognize the people. People are different. And then with that as a backdrop put forward their ideas, and I think they'll be fine.
1: In May 2021, you were already calling up the media for its groupthink on the COVID-19 origin story. What did they get wrong, and what enabled you to see it earlier than most? I, I don't know what enabled uh, uh, me to see it more than most, but I,
2: I was very concerned about that. And, and I think part of the problem was, and I think we've got to be very careful about being critical, of anybody at that time. I think people were doing their best. I don't think people were malevolent or whatever. But I do think that, you know, they did get it. They did get it quite, they did get it quite wrong. And, you know, I just, um, I don't know. Maybe I just, I just, I guess I just saw, it. I have to think about that. I, I guess I just saw different.
1: Final question. My favorite column in the collection is from March 2023, marking the one year anniversary of your kidney transplant. You wrote that that experience caused you to come to see illness as a gift why what do you mean you you go through something like a a kidney transplant and um
2: it 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 is um an opportunity for a reflective person to think about so much you know i was i won every lottery there was to win in that i my partner was a match six percent chance that would happen that he would be able to give me his kidney the best place in the world to have your kidney transplanted is Toronto. There's no place you can fly in your private jet to get on 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 the KPIs on the outcomes better here. I got I got a terrific kidney. Oh had paid for it. I, you know I had I am now in the top two percent of possible results, not age adjusted. Today, if I went to a new doctor I'd never seen before and she ran a blood panel, you know all the biochemistry. It's all normal. If she had a physical exam, she'd see an abdominal scar. And the only way that she would know I had a, a kidney transplant a year and a bit later was if she took an X-ray and she saw that uh, my native kidneys are about the size of walnuts—useless things—and I have a new kidney uh, that is doing all the is doing all the work. And so, I think through that process, I, I saw those things as gifts. I saw my privilege as a gift. You know, you don't have to be very long in a hospital where you see the socioeconomic determinants of health and, you know, why most of those people are are there. Over, you know, people who are underhoused or people who have other substance issues or other things are, you know, vastly overrepresented in that population. And so you just, and you, you also get a chance to talk about it and to and tell your story and help others as well. And, you know, I, I was able, Sean, to go into that surgery. Like, it's not a picnic. It's about eight hours. And my blood pressure was perfectly normal. I was serene. I was sanguine. That peace. I'd done everything possible. And if I can give some other people that help to get to that place, you know, I, I, I would. And and I know you probably don't want me to read from the book. But if I could just read those last four paragraphs that you refer to, I write uh, in the late Paul Dewar's final statement to Canadians. Of course, the well-known uh, New Democrat NP, he told us he saw his illness as a gift, and I never truly understood his words until I was lying by myself in an ICU bed with an IV in each arm. But now I do. The finest gifts fill you with a sense of awe, humility, and renewed purpose. And today, I have a new life because a man I love risked his own. You can't quantify that feeling of gratitude or touch it or hold it in your hand, but you can live out your life with humility and renewed purpose and all. You
1: can give back and you can tell your story and you can keep ridiculous. What a great place to end our conversation. The book is What I Wish I Said, Confessions of a Columnist. Jimmy Watt, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for having me, Sean.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favourite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.